Um, why don't you join me? Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 for our Bible study. We're headed to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. If you're unfamiliar where that is, it's in the middle of the New Testament. You have Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians as you go along. 1904, Ivan Pavlov had done a study that many of us have heard about. The study was dealing with dogs and has since become almost household phrases by being by Pavlov's dogs that people would respond, individuals would respond to outside uh, sounds or impressions. What he did, if you're not familiar, is he took the dogs and he fed them food, then he rang a bell in this series of tests, rang a bell, then fed them the food. After a while, he stopped bringing the food, but just rang the bell and the dogs started salivating. Their bodies responded just to a a sound to an impulse, and it has all to do with conditioning and people responding to uh, their environment. It led to a whole field of study in behavioral psychology. In the same way, in our cultures, in our lives, we are conditioned in certain ways. We respond to food, to people, in in our treatment, and how we, re, we re even say hello to people. It's kind of almost natural at times. We take the kids, we go to a foreign country on these mission trips, and they are kind of grossed out. They're, they're apprehensive about this idea that you have to kiss people on the cheek rather than shake hands. And they say it's kind of weird and it's strange, especially if you have to kiss a man, a man. It gets weirder. In our culture, we're conditioned that we respond a different way. And our COVID environment is changing even some of that conditioning, is it not? Because usually we walk up and say, hi, my name's Wayne, and automatically stick out our hand. We're kind of conditioned because of this is what we're used to. We do that with foods. Certain foods we say we love, we like. A lot of it is because the conditioning that you had. Somebody told me just this week they make a special dish with some uh, different, different type of squash, and they say you have to have an acquired taste to it. Well, we go overseas and we say to the kids, here's something you got to try. you got to try one of these th type of dishes, like pig's ear. And the reaction of most of the teens is, Ugh, not going to try because they're conditioned by just never having it or by just the thought that it's not something good. When I go to the Philippines, I've been offered this before. It's balut. It's a fertilized egg that has the chick in it partially developed. It's put in the ground and it's incubated for a period of time. And then before it hatches, they eat the chick and drink everything that's there. And it's a delicacy in that culture. I don't think it's a delicacy. I'm just not conditioned that way. But I do tell you this when I travel, and at times I've done that, one of the first things I do when I get back is I want a glass of ice water. Just because I like ice and usually other places, they don't serve ice. And you, we're all conditioned. Our family affects us by some of the things that we like, some of the sports or music or even attire. We're conditioned by our family's traditions. We're conditioned by the people we hang around with. And it's two different variations, but we respond to environment. We respond to the influences around us. Paul is writing in this chapter, and he's saying, I want you who are believers to respond to the family of God, to what God has done in your life, to respond in the sense of what is your culture, your Christian culture. You know, sometimes when we travel, we, can, we hear these comments, you can always tell an American, they act like an American in, their, in the different cultures because they're just conditioned that way. Well, we're supposed to be conditioned like we're citizens of heaven. And so in this book, in this chapter, he's going to challenge us to review and analyze how do we react? How do we respond to COVID? How do we react to people? Are we acting like what God has put in us? like the people we're supposed to be. Let's set the scene. 
The whole book is written by the Apostle Paul. You're familiar with that. Chapter 1, verse 1. He says that he is writing this letter. When he starts the book, he's very theological. He deals with doctrinal issues. It's a phenomenal book, the first two chapters. He talks about how great Christ is. Look at the chapter. Back to chapter 1 before we get into chapter 3. He's going to talk about who Jesus is. And I remind you, starting with verse 15. He writes, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature... For by him were all things created that are in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. By him all things consist or exist. Verse 19. It pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness is the idea of that word that's used there is all of the divineness of God is in him. Then in chapter Further on in the chapter, in part of chapter 2, he talks about the redemptive work of Christ, how Christ has provided salvation. I'm going to come back to that, so just hang on. Then what he does is he talks in chapter 2 a little bit further about the different errors that are taking place, the different false teachers coming in. And he talks about how, and he corrects their teaching, and he talks about how they are, de- they are denying and they are distorting the teachings in the person of Jesus Christ. So he's very theological. Let me remind you the two themes of this first two chapters. He is going to say to us believers as we read, he says, Jesus is completely God. That's, that's one of the core t- teachings of this book. And then he's going to say what we just sang about. We are complete in him. We don't need anything else spiritually. We don't need any other preacher or church or baptism. Everything we need spiritually is found in Jesus Christ. Now, are churches and baptism and all those things helpful? Yes. But Christ is to be preeminent in our lives because he's God, because he's given us everything we need to stand before God and be declared righteous. That's his theology. But then what he does is he shifts gears. In the second half of the book, chapters 3 and 4, he is going to get very practical. And what he does there is he's going to talk about because of those truths, here's how you should live. And I, let, me, let me remind you. What he is doing is teaching us and reminding us of this life truth. What we believe it affects how we behave. Our creed impacts conduct. The idea of our doctrine is so important because it impacts our deeds. In other words, what we think, what we believe, is how we are going to live. And so we make sure you are based on right beliefs, and then you should have proper behavior. Chapters 3 and 4 are behavior. He's going to be very practical. He's going to talk about how we should conduct ourselves. The first four verses of chapter 3... Before he gets into family living, gets into parenting, gets into how you should work at your workplace, how you take care of your employees. He's going to get very practical. Before he does any of that, he gives a transitional sentence. That transitional idea is in verses 1 through 4. Let's read it to follow along as we look, and then let's dissect it. In this verse, he sa- verses, he says this. If you then, because of everything I've said, if then... Be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. 
Now, to break this down for those of you taking notes here or at home, let's just do this simple outline. He's going to talk about our past, our conditioning. He's going to talk about what we were, where we're coming from. And then what he's going to do, he's going to talk about our personal responsibility, the commands that he gives. So let's do the first section first. In the past, here's what we were. Okay, this is our history. In that first phrase, he says, if then you be risen with Christ. Right away, notice this. This is to all believers because the word you is plural. So it's to every one of the believers in Christ. This is a fact. This isn't like, well, if maybe. Literally in the original language, it means the if means since. This is a reality. This is a fact. Since you were risen with Christ. And so he makes it very clear that that rising with Christ is referring to a spiritual renewal. A spiritual life being placed within you. Jesus used the terms to describe this. You must be... Born again. Born again. Okay, and so that's that same concept, which implies this. Let's, let's make sure we get the implication clear. It implies, if we, if we were given spiritual life at some point, it implies that prior to that, we didn't have life. That we were dead in sin. And that's not just in this text. There are multiple passages that talk about the fact that you and I were dead in sin. And I remind you what the word dead typically means. It means separated. Just like when somebody dies, spirit and body are separated. From the Garden of Eden, man has been separated from God. They have been spiritually dead. And when people end up in hell, they are eternally dead because they are eternally separated from God. So when we read the word dead, most frequently it just has the idea of being separated. Something, some things being separated. God's word clearly has said, not just in this text, but many other texts, has said that this is a problem for mankind. We go all the way back to the Old Testament. There is not a just man upon the earth that does good, only good, and sins not. We're sinners. It's repeated in the New Testament. For all have sinned and come short of the glory or the standard of God. We even read the phrase, as it is written, which means that this has been taught a long time. There is none righteous, no, not one. That means you and me, all of us. We have sinned. As a result of that sin that we have done, some of it intentionally, some unintentionally. We've lost our temper. We've disobeyed. We've, we've said foul things. We've at times had thoughts that we shouldn't be having. At times we've treated people poorly. Because of that, the wages, the, what you deserve, what you get paid for sin is separation. Separation from God. And so we found out already looking through Colossians. In fact, go back to a chapter. Go back to that section that I said we'd come back to about the redemptive work of Christ. Look what he says in chapter 1 where he starts talking about you and me. He says in verse 21 of chapter 1, You that were at some time in the past alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet he says reconciled. Now alienated and enemies means we were separated. There's a barrier between us and God. It implies very clearly or states this is all of us. The you again is plural. All of us have had this in our past condition. Some are continuing in that condition. But then in that same text he says here's what Jesus did. He says Jesus having made peace 
through the blood of, of his cross by himself to reconcile. We explained this when we were in that section, but let me just do it again for those of you who hadn't heard of those other comments. That having made peace means he's reconciled. He's brought together two people who were alienated and had enmity with one another, who were separated. The word reconciled literally means to remove the barriers. To make sure that there's a restoration. And so in this text it's saying when Jesus died on the cross by his own blood, by his own body, he helped to provide reconciliation. And the next verse emphasizes this idea. Yet now, and the word he uses here is a very emphatic word. He reconciled, he removed all the barriers, not just taking part of it away, but very clearly by his sacrifice that he made at Calvary, that he didn't just punch a hole in this wall so we could talk. He removed the wall completely. That's what he's talking about. Jesus has done. And so in this text, he's saying, hey, here's what you were like. By the way, go to Ephesians 1. Of Ephesians 2, excuse me. Just turn there for a moment. Watch the parallel. This is a twin gospel, uh, twin epistle. This was written about the same time. Watch what he says in Ephesians, just back to your left, a few chapters. He says the exact same thing and gives more clarity to it. He says, chapter 2, Ephesians, verse 1. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Very clearly, that's you and me. In the past, we were dead. Where in time past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of the world or of disobedience. In other words, in the past, we followed our team leader. He was the captain of the team. That is Satan. We did what he wanted. We follow along. We, we had the angers. We had the wraths. We had the selfishness. We had the greed. We had the lust. And he goes on, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and the mind, were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But, but the next two words. If you haven't underlined them, mark them, do it right now. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, he says, and his great love for us, wherewith he loved us, even when he, we were dead in sins, he quickened us. He made us alive. We, and he says, together with Christ, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. We know that that hasn't happened physically, but in the mind of God and in the decree of God, this is a reality. We already, who have repented of our sins, asked Christ to be our saviors, we already have a reservation in heaven. We have a seat in heaven already placed there for us. And so he's making that comment, talking about how God has worked, raised us up, reserved us a seat. That's all in this same idea of back in Colossians, where he talks about you who were risen. You were dead at one time, but in the past, sometime you accepted Christ and it worked. In other words, you were quickened, made alive. You were born again. You had spiritual life given to you very clearly. And as a result... As a result, then he talks about what we have presently. So in the past, we were sinful, separated from God, separated from God. But then he raised us up, gave us life when we repented, birthed us into his family, quickened us. And now what does that mean for us? What's our condition now? Well, he says, you who are now born again, look at chapter 3, verse 3. He says in this phrase with the idea, you are dead to sin. You are dead. That's the same thing he wrote about in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, he's writing to believers, those who have already repented. He says, he, to them, he says, shall we continue in sin so that we can have lots more forgiveness? Do you remember the response he has under the leading of the Spirit? Shall we continue in sin that grace should, should abound? God forbid. 
God forbid, very emphatic, no way this should ever happen. How shall the, we who are dead to sin, we've been separated from it because of what Christ has done. We don't have to do it anymore. We're not under its penalty. We're not under its control anymore. We're separated from that sin. We still struggle with it, but we don't have to give in to it. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Because of the work of Christ. There was uh, two young ladies who were in that early college years. Beautiful young ladies, popular with all of their friends. They were often invited to parties. The parties they were invited to were parties that would be a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, a lot of sexual immorality that could go on. And they were usually considered the life of the party. One of the sisters got, had a friend that gave her the gospel. She responded to it. She repented of her sin, asked Christ to become her Savior, and she was so thrilled that her, her whole life seems to be changed. She immediately told her other sister. So she went to her sister, explained what happened to her. She wanted to know more about it. She ended up getting saved as well, both of them were so excited that they now knew for sure they were on their way to heaven. They now knew their sins were forgiven. They got into a Bible study. They were growing and growing and having just a time of their life, learning about Christ, getting to know the Bible more, and all of a sudden they got an invitation. One of their friends from the past that they used to hang around with quite frequently gave them an invitation to a party. It was going to be one of those parties where it was going to be doing a lot of the stuff that they said, this isn't going to be honoring to the Lord anymore. So here's how they responded. They wrote back in the RSVP, we regret that we cannot attend because both of us have recently died. They're talking about they spiritually have died, okay, in the past and now they've been given new life and they therefore want to be separated from that old lifestyle. They are, remember how baptism shows it? You have died, buried, and you're resurrected to newness of life. They're saying, I, we don't want to do that anymore. Because we have a new purpose, a new type of activity that we're, inbound, we're, uh, we're getting in, involved with. That's what he's talking about this text. He's saying that at the present, we are no longer supposed to be doing those sins. Then he makes another statement that tells you about something you are right now if you're born again. If you've repented of sin, he says, your life is hid with Christ. Now, notice a couple things about this. It's very important that you see this. The verb here has the idea, your life was, is, and continues to be, and will continue to be hid with Christ. It's a very unique, what we call perfect verb in the original language. That idea that this is something that is not going to go away. This is something that means that you are sheltered, you are secure, you are safe in Jesus Christ. Very, very important that we get this concept. That we understand that he is telling us we are a prized possession. Now, you and I don't feel like we're a prize at times. But the reality is to Christ, we are special. Because we are his brothers, his sisters, his children. It also means that we are preserved. We are protected. That we will not lose this relationship. There are so many verses that talk about this. That talk about how we are hid with Christ. When he writes, Peter says, Blessed be God who has begotten us unto a living hope. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away. Reserved in heaven for you. And that reservation isn't going to be canceled. God will never take it away from you. Jesus, when speaking as the good shepherd and telling about how he is the great shepherd, made this comment. I give unto them who believe eternal life and they shall never perish. And he goes on, he says, neither shall any creature, man, angel, demon, pluck them out of my hand. 
He says in Hebrews, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost or to the complete end. There's never, there's never a spot where he becomes powerless, where all of a sudden his battery dies, that he can't keep you safe, that come unto God. We read in Romans, fabulous passage, where shall, who shall lay anything at the, uh, any charge at the feet of God's elect? Who shall accuse you? So God basically turns away from you. Who shall separate us from the love of God? I am persuaded that neither death, life, angels, principalities, powers, nor things present, things to come, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. What a wonderful truth. A wonderful truth that we are secure in Jesus Christ. We are hid in him. So he's told us, he said, in the past, we were separated from God. Now he has given us life. And as we've been given life, now we are hid with him. Now we belong to him. And then he says, this is going to be your future. Your future. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, when Christ shall appear. By the way, that when isn't maybe. The when is a definite. When Christ comes. Now, we know it's definite, but we don't know when it will happen. For a lot of us here, we'd say, we wish he would come quickly. That he could come. I wouldn't mind if he came before the elections. And we didn't have to deal with that. That would be okay with me. Okay? But we look at this and we say, okay, we don't know when he's coming back, but he is coming back. He's coming back. And then he makes this comment. He says, you shall... Who he, he says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. What a wonderful statement. One day we're going to be in heaven. That's what it means. One day we're going to be in heaven. One day we'll enjoy his presence, his glory. One day, he says, everything that we read about, we think about, it will be made, vis- made visible. That's that second appear when it's saying you shall appear. It's the idea that which was hidden is going to be revealed. We're hidden in Christ, and, uh, and all the benefits will be revealed to us. Um, maybe it's part of this. Do you remember that Jesus, in speaking to the disciples, said this? The glory which he's praying at this moment. The glory which you gave me, I gave to them. So in other words, we have something of God's glory in us when we're born again. Okay, then he says further on, we have also been glorified in the mind of God. It's already taken place. Those who are justified were glorified. In other words, we are, this is a definite. It's not going to be a, a maybe. God already in his mind sees you as already perfect as you will be in heaven. What Colossians is talking about when he appears, we will experience the fullness of what God has placed in us and God has declared we will be. That when he appears, we're going to... Do you remember when Jesus is with his disciples? Goes on the Mount of Transfiguration. Was Jesus God when he went up to that mountain? Yes or no? You, you have to say yes if you're following the Bible. Or if you're awake. One of the two. Okay. Yes, he, did he have God's glory? Did he still possess that when he went up looking like a man? Yes. But when he was on top of the mountain, what all of a sudden came out? What was revealed? The glory of God. All of a sudden, it was like, but it was always there. We have, in other words, we have some of God's glory because of his forgiveness, his greatness, already within us. And when he comes, we're going to all of a sudden experience it. In other words, our resurrection bodies. The resurrection body, when Jesus Christ comes and he takes us to heaven, our bodies are going to be changed. They're going to be glorified. Our bodies will not be weak bodies. 
They will not be balding bodies. They will not be fat bodies. Okay? They will not be the bodies that some of us have. We wake up in the morning and it's a chore to get out of bed. And we want to go right back into it. They're, our bodies will not suffer COVID pandemics. We won't need insurances. We won't need doctors. Praise God. Okay? Is that what he's talking about? Possibly. But I think he's talking about more. The glory of God is also giving praise to him. We're going to get rewards when we get to heaven. We're going to have that rejoicing in heaven, the residency in heaven. And he says, when he shall appear, we're going to get all this. And it's going to be our full experience, not just in our future possession, but in our actual possession. Now, he's saying all this idea, telling us about our history. And this is so critical. He's saying, this is what we were in a dire situation in the past. But God has done a great work. He's changed us. He's given us hope, given us new name, given us new, new purpose, given a spirit of God. He's given us a new hope for the future, a confidence that we know we will be in heaven one day. Not because we're good but by the grace of God. And he's given us all this. He's saying, because you were delivered, that should make a difference in your life. You don't want to go back to any of what you did in the past. That's where he's going to go with this. Hey, I had an experience of being delivered. When I was between my junior and senior year in college, I had the privilege of serving as a, an assistant, a minister, we called him Preacher Boys, uh, just as an intern for a summer in a church in Lebanon, Indiana. And when I was there doing that, the uh, pastor had his house about half a block away. I stayed in the parsonage, which was vacant, and right next door to the church. That meaning I lived by myself in that place, and I had to cook my own food. That was a horrible experience. That was an awful experience. Cooking, you know, that meant I had to do my own grocery shopping. That's just, that was like, oh, the worst thing in the world. Getting all four wisdom teeth pulled every, every time you go in the store. And so I had to do my own shopping, and I got the stuff that I consider good. Potato chips, dip, sodas. And, but I knew I needed some stable foods once in a while. So I got a few soups, and I really splurged. I got some macaroni and cheese. And then my main meal that I had that summer was chow mein out of a can spread over the noodles. Didn't take much effort. That's the key word here, no effort. And so I would go home to the, the place, and I'd fix lunch. Okay, I'm going to have chow mein. Okay, I have five cans of it. I'll have it here. So I put it in a bowl, heated it all up, had some, left it there, came back for supper. It was still partially warm. Okay, get some more chow mein. The next day, it was still there on the stove, partially warm. I ate the chow mein until something green started growing in it. Yeah, and it was good. It was that. Then the summer was over. I go back to college, and college campus food is not that much better. And so I'm thinking, what am I going to do next summer? How is this going to work? Am I going to go through another horrible time of eating? No, I got delivered. A week after I graduated, we got married. Okay. It was, it was how God delivered me from my own cooking. Okay. I have no desire to go back and eat my own cooking. I have no desire to go back to chow mein, you know, macaroni and cheese. Now I'm on healthier food, you know, peanut M&Ms and whatever Deb makes, okay? That's what he's talking about in this book. He's saying, if you've been delivered, why would you want to go back? Why would you want to go back? With that in mind, what he's doing, that's the since then, Okay, your Bible might read if. Since then, since God has done all this for you, since this is who you are, this is what God has done for you, 
then what should you do? Then he talks about two commands. The two commands, by the way, are very clear, very simple. They are commands, both of them have the idea, keep on, keep on, keep on. Persistently do these two things. And they apply to every one of you sitting here, every one of you listening at home. They make perfect application because they are plural verbs. What should we be doing persistently, consistently, that he has to write believers to remind them about? That it has to be brought up to them again? These two things. Number one. Number one, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. That phrase is so poignant. It is so filled with powerful truth. It's amazing. Do you just think about this? This verse is saying Christ is alive. That Jesus Christ is alive. Though he died, buried, he did come back to life. He is alive sitting at the right hand of the Father. There are so many passages that talk about this. When Peter first preached, the very first message he gives at, at Pentecost, he emphasized this truth. He says, This Jesus God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God. Understand what he is saying in Bible terms. If you're at the right hand of somebody who has authority, it means you have their authority. You're the right-hand man. We use that phrase even today. This is telling us great, that Christ is in control. Christ is supposed to be having your preeminence because of where he sits. Again, just a couple chapters later, he's talking to the Jewish Sanhedrin who are not believing Jesus rose, and he very boldly says, Kim has God exalted at God's right hand. Again, we read, when, when Stephen is being stoned by persecutors who deny Jesus Christ, he boldly says, I see heavens open and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing on the right hand of God. We read in the New Testament, watch this one, this one's so loaded. When he, God, raised Jesus from the dead, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities, all powers, all might, all dominion, every name that is named, Jesus is greater in heaven than anybody you can think of. The Washingtons, the Lincolns, all the people from history, Jesus is exalted. He's at the right hand. And then we read in Hebrews, who being in the brightness of God's glory, the express very God himself image of his person, upholding all things, keeping everything by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down, meaning his job was complete, he sits in the seat of authority. We read in one more passage, we have a high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep this in mind. Jesus is in heaven at God's right hand. And we're supposed to seek those things that are in heaven by Jesus Christ. What's that mean? What are we supposed to be seeking? Well, the word literally means pursue after until you can grab them. Now, some of us who need to be persistent. When I play tag with the grandkids, I must be persistent because I'll never catch them if I just, you know, for a flash. I got to keep on, keep on because they're so much quicker than I am. And he's saying, okay, keep it up, keep it up. You're old, you're feeble, but keep on, keep on grabbing after that which is coming from the right hand of God. That which Jesus controls. Saying active effort. Not just coming and sitting passively listening to a message. You must come Monday, Tuesday, and the rest of the week. Actively do something to seek those things which are above. Now what's he talking about? What are the things? 
Could they be the blessings that come from heaven? Could it be where Jesus Christ sits to answer your prayers? Could it be the idea that you do that which glorifies Christ because he's at the right hand of God? Going after everything that heaven says should be your standard. Seeking after that which will last in heaven? That idea of pursuing the rewards that he from his throne will give out to those who are seeking after the things above? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is we should make it our goal as Christians to actively pursue after what Christ makes available, what he approves, what he authorizes us to do. Tremendous, tremendous truth here. That we are supposed to be working hard not just at things here in this world, but looking to the future. In fact, then he gives a second command. The second command, okay, oh, and I wanted to make this statement. There are so many other passages that give you the same concept. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Pray where there, therefore you eat or drink. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul, Paul's own example, I keep on pressing towards the mark. All of that. L- let me take you back to this idea. Babies, do they cry a lot? Would you say that that's a fair statement? Babies cry a lot? Yeah, okay. When they cry, they're telling you something. Basically, three ideas. I'm hungry. I'm uncomfortable because I'm wet or messy. I'm bored, and I want you to entertain me. Okay. And it's all about who. Do they stop and say, if you're busy, you, know, you can wait a while. Oh, you're watching your program. I'll just occupy myself. That doesn't work that way. When babies want something, they want it. Yeah, or yesterday. Okay, they want it quickly. And they're driven by their own desire. And they want that now. Now, he's writing and saying, be grown up here. Grow up. Stop being acting like babies. Stop acting like I took you out of. Instead of making it about you and about you following your own desire, body desires, he's basically saying what I want you to do is seek the things above. Adopt a new purpose. Adopt a new plan for your life, seeking those things which are above. Then what he does is gives the second command. The second command is very similar, but a little bit different. Look at verse 2. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. Okay, he's saying it's not down here, but it's up there. Set your affection. Okay, now catch these. The word things above is first in the sentence order in the original manuscripts. So it's an emphatic placement. On the things above, set your affection. Then what he says is the words, and the word affection, we think, okay, my heart, I have affection for somebody. Rather, this is your mind. This is how you operate. That you set your thinking, your attention upon the things above. What he's telling me is the same thing, by the way, it's the same word that's used in Philippians, where it says, let this mind be in you, let this attention, let this, this thinking that Christ has be in you. And the whole idea fits what Bible says. As a man thinks, that is what he is. You, whatever, whatever you think, you do. Your beha- beliefs affect your behavior. Your, your thoughts affect how you treat other people. In fact, where your treasure is, where your attention is, that is where your heart is also. That's biblical. And so with this in mind, what he's telling us is place your greater bulk of attention on things above, things up there rather than things here and now. Now, I'm not saying this, please. Okay, I'm not, I, I, let, let, me refer, let, me, let me use an illustration first. What we at times set our attention on, it thrills us. 
things that we really focus on. Some of you, some of you focus on food. You love making food. I don't understand that. But you love, and I'm so grateful when I get some of your food. It is wonderful. And you really, you just love it. Some of you are coffee fiends. And it just thrills. You ask, hey, did you make your own coffee? Oh, man, you, they just get thrilled. They get excited. They're, no, they want to talk about it. Some of you want to talk about sports. You, you just started a little bit of conversation. Do you play sports? Who's your favorite team? And woo, we're off and running with a conversation. That's okay. That's good. Some here and there at home, you love, it, you love vacations. Well, that's most of us. But some of you are so focused on vacation, you will plan all year for the vacation. Save for it, plan for it, make reservations for it. Great, good. That's fine. Some of you, it's for vehicles or it's other possessions that just, they are your cat's meow. Something you're really thrilled about. Now, if you ask my grandson about a dragon, he will all, oh, whoa, you want to hear about dragons? And he'll give you a lecture on dragons. He'll give you all kinds of descriptions. His newest thing right now is a bug collection. So it's like find every weird bug you can. So when they come to our, over to our house, the first thing you say, let's go find bugs. Let's go. Yeah, I really want to do this. Let's go find bugs. Yeah. Okay. yeah even so, he's, got, he's even got some of the pastoral staff looking for bugs for him. He's recruited others. Let, let's flip this over. Let's flip this. Does this happen with Jesus Christ? When all of a sudden somebody brings up Christ to you, does your face light up? Does all of a sudden you want to recruit others to learn about Christ? Do you want to plan for what you can do for Christ and give some attention to that? Now, listen, what I, I'm not saying this. I am not saying to you, don't worry about your job. Okay, Think so much about heaven, you don't worry about going to work tomorrow. Somebody just told me after the first service, they said they had a kid, they were teaching school, <clears throat> and they taught fifth graders. And the, during that week of school, they had a preacher in who was preaching about Jesus coming again. One of the fifth grade students, who was a great student, all of a sudden stopped doing homework. The first week, I was like, okay, why didn't you do The second week, he still didn't do his homework. So the teacher asked, caught contact of the parents, said, is there something going on at home? No, no, no. So they all got the little boy together, and they all sat down and said, why is it you're not doing your homework? Because Jesus is coming. Um, no, 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 no. We know Jesus could come at any moment, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing homework. You want to be faithful to that. But that little boy thought this through. If Jesus is coming, then I don't have to worry about anything, including homework. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that you should no longer focus on being a good parent. We're not saying that what you should do is stop paying bills. I'll just make all kinds of debt. Jesus will take care of it. We're not saying that. We're not saying don't work on your car, your yard, your house. We're not saying you shouldn't worry about what you look like. Okay, Jesus is coming. I don't have to wear anything clean. You know, I don't have to dress nice. We're not saying that. We're not saying you forget about your pets. We're not saying you forget about your pastimes and hobbies. We're not saying that you should never read any other book but your Bible. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is this. If you and I are going to let the fact that Jesus has changed us, that we are belonging to him and we're headed to heaven, then this should have an impact on our life. We should, if we believe this, we should say the rewards he gives out in heaven should make a difference in how we live right now. He's going to give a reward for purity. That should motivate us to be pure. 
He's going to give a reward for not, not losing it in trials. Then that means that we should not panic when we're in a pandemic. We're saying that you should conduct yourself by that which comes from heaven. Heavenly standards. Honesty, integrity, dependability. We're saying is, as parents, we should teach our kids the most important things in life are not make money and have a fabulous career. The greater, more important thing in life is honoring Jesus Christ. We should be teaching and saying to others and to one another that as a worker at my job, I should strive for excellence because I'm working for Jesus Christ ultimately according to what we're going to see in Colossians a little bit later on. This means we should be good stewards. It means we should use our possessions to share our faith. It means we should live by God's ethics, by the example of Christ. It means we should not get upset during these trials. It means that we should talk about the gospel more than what we do. That's what it means to set our affection, our mind on things above. I know, I heard it when I was in college. That D.L. Moody was complaining that saying that so many believers are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. True, that is some people, they just kind of just lose reality and they're kind of the fringe edge. But that's not where most of us struggle. Most of us, that's not our problem that we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. The problem is... We're often too earthly minded that we aren't doing any good for heaven. Most of us in this room, most of you who are sitting and watching this video, we don't have a problem that we have to do less. We should be raising the standard and notching it up a bit for serving Jesus Christ. That's what this text is about. This text is talking to believers and saying, come on, come on. Keep on going. Don't stop. What you need to do is you should give your kids a better example of Christianity. What this means you should do, you should do a little bit more reading and meditating on the Word of God. What this is challenging us to do is every day think about how do I glorify God? How do I glorify God? We should be purer in what we watch and read. It should impact us that we are more careful what we say, how we talk about other people. That we don't rip them down. We don't get angry with them. We don't tear them up. We should be more forgiving for others. What it means for us is we should be praying more often. What it means for us, most of us here need to share the gospel more. Not less. Most of us here, we need to improve our service for Christ. Not decrease it. By seeking those things which are above. Setting our affections on things above. He's talking to believers to get real, to get with it, to stop letting the world control us and make sure that Christ is preeminent. That's what he's saying. Why? Why should we be more devoted to Christ? Because we've been changed. Because we don't belong here. This is not our home. That's our home. We should be acting like we belong as, as citizens of heaven that we are. We should, be, we should be realizing we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. He owns us. We should remember that we're not here for a very long time. Uh, uh, true confession. When I take the mission trips, when I go on those things, I enjoy them. They're fun. I love them. I appreciate them. But I got to tell you, every evening... This is, I've watched myself do this now for years. Every evening, I'm, when I crawl in the bed, it's like, okay, I have six more nights before I'm home. Five more nights before I'm home. Four more nights. Why? I like home. 
I like my bed. Anybody with that one? I like to be around my kids, my wife, my family. Yeah, do I enjoy taking your kids on a trip? Yeah, but they're still your kids. I want to spend more time with my family. In the same way, we, sh- we can be looking and saying, I love it here. I'm, I'm having fun here. I love preaching to you. I, I, had, I had the worst dream last night. I dream I resigned and went to another church and they were not like you at all. I woke up like, oh Lord, that was a dream. Thank God. I still have a job at Faith Baptist. Okay, I love it. it is, this is the greatest place in the world to be serving Christ with you people. But at the same time, this isn't the end. It's only going to get better. And we look forward to that. And we realize heaven is real. That's what this text is about. Heaven is real and it should make a difference in your life. True story. His name is Lou Little. 26 years coach at Columbia, the football team. And he wrote about his experiences. And he talks about one boy that came to the football uh, tryout. And this boy was no good. This new freshman. He was excited to play football. It was bad. Coach Little said, as I reviewed, it was like, that kid's not making the squad. But during those two days of tryouts, that kid got his attention. Not because he was athletic, but because of his attitude. The boy was enthusiastic. The boy was an encouragement to the others. He was just, he was neat to be around. And the coach thought to himself, you know, I can't put this kid on the team, but maybe I can put him on the practice squad. He can dress for games and sit on the bench, and he'll be a great cheerleader. He's such a good example of hard worker, of just encouraging others. And the coach decided to put him on the team that way. And it played out just like he thought. This boy was a great influence on all the others. When the others were getting too tired to keep up working on the practice, the boy was the encourager. He was the example. He was great for the team. The other thing that the coach saw is on weekends, the boy would be visited at the campus by his dad. And when his dad would come, he and his dad would walk around campus arm in arm. It was clear they had a deep affection for one another. And the thing that they always did on Sundays is they visited the campus chapel where there would be good Bible preaching at that time. And it was obvious. Coach would sit in there and watch them, that they knew their Bibles, that they were individuals that had deep faith. Semester's going along, and all of a sudden a phone call comes to the, to the main office, years before phone, cell phones, comes to the main office, and they say that the boy's dad has suddenly died. Somebody has to tell the boy. Coach Little was volunteered to be the one. So he went and talked to the boy, told the boy, and the boy was broken up. The boy immediately left campus, went home for a couple of weeks to take care of funeral, all those types of things, and he came back. The day he comes back, Coach Little says in his autobiography, he says that he met the boy on campus, walks up to the young man, gives his condolences, and he says this to the boy, if there is anything I can do for you, I'll do it, just let me know. The boy smiled at him and said, then you'll let me start this weekend's game? This was the last game of the season. This was against their big interschool rival. And the coach, you know how you can think so many things in just a second? The coach says, oh no, he'll destroy my, we'll lose. This boy's no good. But I gave him my word. I can put him in for one or two plays and take him out. He won't do too much damage by then. That's what I'll do. Yeah, you can start. The boy is thrilled. They get there to the game. The coach is nervous, but he lets the boy start. 
They have the kickoff, and now it's the first, the other team has the ball. First play, he puts the boy in. First, def- boy's on defense, first play of the game, the boy breaks through the defenders, tackles the quarterback for a loss. Second play, the boy single-handedly sets the team opposing team back again. The third play, the boy does another phenomenal play. Says, the boy played such a game that the coach left him in the whole game. At the end of the game, which they won, they are carrying this boy into the locker room. They give him the game ball. The coach pulls him aside. He says, don't take this wrong, but what got into you? And the boy responded with this. He says, coach, you didn't know this, but my dad was blind or almost blind. And this today, him being in heaven, this is the very first game he can see me play. Now, I don't, know about, I don't know about his theology on that. But I do know this. His view of heaven made all the difference in how he played the game. Your view of heaven should make all the difference how you live this week. That's what this, this is all about. It's about the idea that you and I saying, I have a reservation in heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven How should I conduct myself? It should make all the difference to say, my Lord is at the right hand of the throne of God. He is ruling. He is reigning. He's in control. He is not lost control. I should be trusting him. I should not be panicking. This should be a thought for some of you. Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? The Bible says these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. I grew up in a church that said nobody can know. That's not what the Bible says. I grew up in a church that says you just have to wait until you die. Uh, The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. You don't want to wait till then. You want to know right now. And this passage is written to people who know that they're going to heaven. Not because they belong to a church, not because they've been baptized, not because they're preacher, but they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They've repented of their sin and asked him to forgive them of the sin that separated, give them new life, make them one of God's children. And then I want to serve you. If you're here today, And you are an individual that says, I need to make some changes. When we pray, why don't you make some commitments to Christ? If you're here today and you do not know you're on your way to heaven, you have some doubts, before you walk out, I'll gladly talk with you. The person who invited you, ask them, can somebody show me from the Bible what I need to do to make sure I'm going to heaven? Make sure. Make sure. Seek those things which are above. Don't be satisfied with what's here. Father, I pray. Help me and my friends to live this passage. Not just to learn it, but to live it. To live as if you really are in heaven, on the right hand. That you really have changed us. That you have us a plan for us to be in heaven with you and that there's rewards. Help us to live as the citizens of Christ that we ought to be. Help us to live like your children that you called us to be. Help us. To make Christ preeminent in our minds, our hearts, our activities, our functions. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.